The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. 2 Samuel chapter 7. If you have your Bibles, would you open them to 2 Samuel chapter 7? We're going to continue our look at God's Word together. On the maps in front of you are thank you from both West Texas and Moore, Oklahoma. Uh, if you remember when the tornadoes went through Moore and when the explosion happened in West, we took special offerings and uh, we sent to churches in both of those cities. And I uh, received thank you notes from both of them. Uh, church in, uh, in Norman actually had uh, one of their folks, uh, family, that attended their church and they were able to help them. And then in West, uh, I mentor a young man at Fellowship Bible Church, one of the pastors there. We spend time together. He's a senior pastor there, Grant Call. Good young, good man. And uh, they had a couple in their church and uh, just tragic situation, as you know, happened there. Uh, one of the couples, uh, the man lost sight in one eye. His wife is permanently blind in both. And so they were able to help that family and their church through your generosity. And so we, see, we say praise God for the generosity of the saints for you and for providing for them. Uh, secondly, one of the things that we do every month at TBC, if you look in the hallway, you will find something called Closer Walk, which will take you through the New, uh, the New Testament a year, Daily Walk, the Bible in a year, Daily Bread, a Daily Devotional. We want to encourage you to be in the Word of God. Growth takes place as you're in the presence of God and in the Word of God, and so we're encouraging you to find places to do that. So pick those up. They're free. Uh, after you use them a couple of months, you can order them free online or make a small donation, and that will get you in the Word on a regular basis to look at it. Hero. This morning we look at uh, Christ as King. Christ as King. Second Samuel chapter 7. Very important section of God's word. David wants to build a temple. Uh, God says no. But then God says this to David beginning in verse 16. Your house, Second Samuel 7:16. Your house, your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. If you write in your Bibles, I've circled in my Bible the word house, kingdom, throne, forever. The promise of God to David through Nathan the prophet is this. David, your house, your kingdom, and your throne shall be established forever. Father, as we open the word once again, we pray that you would teach us, that you would encourage us, and you would change us. I pray that Christ will be seen. He is the king. Hide me behind the cross so our focus will be on him. In his name we pray. Amen. Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson were on a camping trip. After a good meal and conversation, they lay down for the night and went to sleep. Some hours later, Holmes awoke and nudged his faithful friend. He said, Watson, look up at the sky and tell me what you see. Watson replied, I see millions and millions of stars. Holmes asked, what does that tell you? But Watson pondered for a moment, and he said, astronomically, it tells me there are millions of galaxies and potentially billions of planets there. Astrologically, it, I observed that Saturn is in Leo. Horologically, and I had to look that word up, it means uh, measuring time. Horologically, it says I deduce that the time is approximately quarter past three in the morning. Theologically, I can see that God is omnipotent, and we are small and insignificant in comparison. Meteoro meteorologically, I suspect that we have a beautiful day ahead of us tomorrow. Watson asked, what does it tell you, Holmes? Holmes was silent for a minute, and he spoke. Watson, think, man. It means someone has stolen our tent. <laughs> you know, sometimes we overlook the obvious, don't we? 
I mean, we just overlook the obvious. And when you read the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation, the obvious is there was a promised king, and there's a king who was coming, and there's a king who is coming. And when you look from Genesis to Revelation, it's pretty clear that many missed the obvious. They missed it then in the first century, and they miss it now. And as we look at this section of God's word, 2 Samuel chapter 7, we look at a very important section. In fact, when we come to this section of God's Word, we don't want to miss the obvious. And when we look at the Scriptures, we don't want to miss the obvious. Walt Kaiser, a great Old Testament scholar, said 2 Samuel chapter 7 is one of the greatest moments in biblical history. It establishes the Davidic dynasty forever. Walter Brueggemann, who's a great theologian, says this, dramatic and theological, it is the dramatic and theological center of Samuel's entire writings. It's the most crucial theological statement in the Old Testament. Man, that's high speaking in it the most crucial theological statement in the Old Testament. Why is this section so significant? Why is it so important? What does it teach us? If it's the high point of the Old Testament, according to one theologian, what does it teach and why is it it something we want to understand? 2 Samuel chapter 7 contains a promise that can only be fulfilled in one person. In fact, the funnel of history, the funnel of time points to one person. And we don't want to miss the obvious. We don't want to miss the obvious. But most of the world in the first century missed the obvious, and most of the world today misses the obvious as well. And so we ask the question, who is this king of glory? We ask this question, what child is this? We ask the question, if David is the greatest king, and this is a promise, what happened to the promise? And so this morning we begin by looking at that very promise. 2 Samuel chapter 7 is royal language. It is language of promise. It's, it, it's a chapter that we see and we understand that, that it's significant. David's dreams have been shattered. If you back up to the first portion of this chapter in verses 1 through 3, he goes to Nathan the prophet says, I'd like to build a dwelling place for God. We have our homes, verse 2, but God does not, and so I'd like to do it. And then in verse 5, God says to Nathan the prophet, Go and say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord, Are you the one who should build a house for me to dwell in? David, the answer is no. David, you want to build the temple. And by the way, temple language is throughout the scriptures as well. David, you want to build the temple. Your desire is to build a house for God in Jerusalem. But David, that's not going to be your privilege. David, you've been a warrior. You've been a man of blood. And so the privilege of building the temple will not be for you. God says no. You ever have God tell you no? I mean, sometimes it seems that we come before God and we request of God and we beg of God. But his answer is no. His answer is no. It becomes a difficult time. God says no. How do you respond? How do you respond? Do you you pitch a tantrum like a three-year-old? I'm sure your three-year-olds have never pitched tantrums, right? Or or do you run away like the prodigal? Or do you say, God, you're not fair? When God says no, when you say, God, I want to be married. God, I I want this decent job. God, I want financial security. God, I want health. God, I I desire for a position. I desire security or I I desire this ministry. And and God says no. You know, throughout my journeys in life and pastoring for over 30 years, one of the things I've learned sometimes unanswered prayer is good. Have you found that out? Sometimes when God does not answer prayer the way we want it, we should give thanks for that. Because we look back and recognize that would not have been the best pathway for us. That would not have been the wisest choice for us. That would not have been the best direction for us. 
sometimes unanswered prayers are best prayer. Howard Hendricks, who was a prophet at Dallas Seminary that uh, many of us enjoyed taking, and uh, he actually passed away a couple of months ago. But I'll never forget, he would come to, one of his stories is when he was a young seminary student, he was doing an interim pastorate in Fort Worth, and he was a young single man in his uh, early 20s. And he said, one day after I preached, a lady came up and she had her daughter in tow. And I looked at the lady and I looked at her daughter and she said, uh, Mr. Hendricks, Reverend Hendricks, I'm praying that one day you'll become my son-in-law. And he said, I looked at the mom and I looked at the girl, and then he deadpans and says, Have you ever thanked God for unanswered prayer? (laughs) That great American theologian, Garth Brooks, (laughs) he wrote a song in 1991. You remember the name of it? Unanswered Prayer. And it became, I mean, it just flew to the top of the charts and stayed there for months. And it's a story about how he went back to a home uh, hometown football game and he saw his old flame that he had always wanted to be with and he had his wife on his arm and realized what a blessing she was. And the chorus of that song says, Sometimes I thank God for unanswered prayer. That just because he doesn't answer doesn't mean he don't care. Some of God's greatest gifts are unanswered prayer. And it's hard to think that way sometimes, isn't it? We think if God is good, he's going to answer every prayer. But the reality of it is sometimes we need to thank God for those unanswered prayers. David's desire was to build a temple. What I found out is when God says no, he often has something better in store. When God says no, he often has something better in store. And that's David's scenario. What God says is, David, you will not build a house for me, but David, I will build a house for you. David, you're not going to have you're not have the opportunity to build a house for me, but I'll let your son do it. His son was Solomon. He said, I'll let your son do it, but David, I'm going to do something even greater. I'm going to build a house for you. And when we come down to verse 16, he says, this house, this kingdom, this throne will be established forever. <clears throat> David, you're not going to build a house for me, but David, I'm going to build a house for you. And it's not just any house, but it's a throne. It's something that I will give to you forever. And that's the Davidic covenant. That's God's promise to David. David, your throne, your kingdom will be established forever. And when we look at the funnel of history, there is only one person who can fulfill the promise that was given, and that's the Messiah, the true king. And so as we look at the promise given to David called the Davidic covenant, we realize that this throne, this kingdom will be established forever. David, you won't build a temple, but my kingdom will be built through you. David, you won't build a temple, but I'm going to establish a throne that will last forever. David, it's through you that the ultimate descendant, the ultimate king will come. It's Jesus himself who will be there. Jesus, the hero, will come through you, David. The Davidic covenant is reiterated several times in the scriptures. And one of the places is Psalm 89. Jot down Psalm 89. You know, let's take a look at it later. It says this. It's a reiteration of Davidic covenant. The psalmist says, you said, God, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. The word covenant means to cut. I have cut this with David. I am responsible for this. I have sworn to David, my servant, I will establish your line forever and make your throne firm through all generations. David, I have given you a promise. I've given you the promise of the coming king. And so, David, you will not build a temple, but greater than that, David, I, I, will, I will give to you the one who is the true king through your line. So you fast forward. And we've done this at Christmas time a couple of times. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 16, he says, I will establish a house, a kingdom, and a throne forever. 
And then you fast forward to the Christmas story. You fast forward and there's a young Jewish teenage girl. And we're not sure exactly how it happens, but we know as any young girl who's engaged to be married, I'm sure she was playing in her mind, thinking in her mind about the future and everything, and then she startled. She startled because an angel appears to her. And when this angel appears to her, he speaks to her, and the revelation becomes even more startling. Her world is turned topsy-turvy upside down. Because when that angel appears to her, he says, you will conceive and you'll give birth to a son. And you'll call his name Jesus. And he'll be great. And he'll be called Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him what? The throne, royal language, of whom? David. God made the promise in Second Samuel 7 and now that Mary is going to be with child, conceived by the Spirit of God, virgin born. He says he's going to be of the throne of David. Highly significant in the Gospels. He will reign over Jacob's descendants, how long? For 33 years? Forever. His kingdom will never end. It's the Davidic promise reiterated to Mary, saying the Messiah, the baby you're carrying, the Son of God, he will be the fulfillment of everything that was promised to David. He will be the ultimate fulfillment, and so the funnel of history points to him. By the way, when Matthew introduces his gospel, he writes about the royal lineage of Christ, and he begins in Matthew chapter 1, and he says, this is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of whom? The son of David. You see, if you're going to trace the ultimate king back, you're going to trace his genealogy through David. And he says, I want you to know that when Messiah comes, when Jesus comes, he's going to be the one. Jesus, the Messiah, will come from David's lineage. It's the promise all the way back in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 16. It says his throne, his kingdom will have no end. They will be there, his house, his throne, his kingdom forever. The promise given to Mary. And then you go to Matthew, and it says, I want you to know he will be of the genealogy of King David. He traces it right back to him. It's the obvious. There's only one person. The tent is missing, dear Watson. It should be obvious. Out of all of human history, there's only one person who can fulfill the promises that have been made. The promises have been made. It's Jesus of Nazareth. I was thinking through this, I was thinking of Christmas carols. Thinking of Christmas carols. You know, it's amazing the number of Christmas carols that called the baby a king. Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Let earth receive her what? King. It came upon a midnight clear. To heaven's all glorious. You can respond. King. It's a simple, you'll get the answer right every time. I guarantee you. <laughs> Angels we've heard on high. Christ the Lord, the newborn king. king. What child is this? This, this is Christ the king. Amazing, isn't it? And then from the Messiah. King of kings and Lord of lords. I was going to sing that, but I want you to stay, so I'm not. (laughs) King of kings and Lord of lords forever and ever. King of kings and Lord of lords forever. And when we see this, we recognize he is the hero. It's the obvious thing. He is the one who's there. They should have recognized the obvious. But here's the problem. In the first century... They really weren't looking for this kind of king. They were looking for a king that would overthrow Herod. They would look for a king who wouldn't change their hearts, but who would change their circumstances. They were looking for a king who would conform to their religion, not a spiritual king who called them to repentance. They wanted religion and not repentance. 
So they missed the obvious. The king came and they missed it. Not only did they miss it, they rejected him. John chapter 1 said, he came to his own, but his own knew him not. Hey, if you have been rejected, you're in good company. They rejected the king. They rejected the king of kings. And people still reject him today. I laughed at the explanation of one man who'd been rejected. In Washington, D.C., the application form for federal employment includes this question, why did you leave your present or your previous employment? One applicant, a former U.S. congressman, responded, I left my previous employment at the express wish of 116,000 voters. <laughs> Charlie Brown, I lost a lot of my material when Charles Schultz passed away, the cartoonist of Charlie Brown, but in one cartoon strip, Charlie Brown is in his bed lying awake at night, and he said, when I lie, in wake, uh, when I lie awake at night, I ask, where have I gone wrong? And then I hear a voice saying to me, this is going to take a lot more than one night, Charlie Brown. If you've been rejected, you're in good company. They rejected the Savior. They rejected the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Chuck Colson in one of his books says, many years after the Watergate episode, or many years, many years later, I was indicted for my role in Watergate. Far more difficult than going to prison was to stand in the courtroom and hear the clerk read in a courtroom I so respect. The United States of America versus Charles W. Colson. The scars from hearing that wound my heart even today. To be told that your country and your friends are casting you out creates unspeakable shame. But then I think of what it would be like when I would hear my father say, well done, good and faithful servant. And he actually heard that call last year. You see, they reject many, and Colson deserved what he got. He'll tell you that. But the reality of it is when you hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant, you have one who will never reject you if you know him as Savior. They rejected him. They turned from him. They turned away from him, but God kept his promise. He kept his promise to send the king, and he came. Kings and kingdoms always have enemies. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 4. Kings and kingdoms have enemies in opposition. If you look at the Middle East right now, for example, you'll see that there's great opposition internally, externally. Egypt, Syria, pick your nation. Iraq, Iran, even Israel. Same thing is true with our heavenly king as kingdom. When he, his battle began many, many, many moons ago. The battle to rule the earth began in the heavenlies. I mean, this battle for kingship is an age-old battle. It's an age-old battle. I mean, it's a battle that took place in the heavenlies when Satan and his angels turned against our father. One author puts it this way. The promised king becomes the tempted king. Like many kingdoms, there was an evil archenemy whose name was Lucifer. At one time, he had been the highest-ranking angel in all of God's dominion and was cherished by his creator. Dissatisfied with a loving relationship with his maker, he became crazed with an evil passion for power. He attempted a coup. Although he was merely, crea- merely a created being who depended on God, For his very existence, he committed an act of treason against the king of glory. That's what happened. You see, it's my favorite author because of who did it. (laughs) Exchanging peace for war, he rebelled against God's authority and took a team of angels with him to establish a rival kingdom. You see, what happened in eternity past is Satan reared his ugly head against God. And he boldly and brashly said this. I will ascend to heaven. This is Isaiah 14. 
I will raise my what? Throne. Satan wanted to be king. Satan wanted to be king. And so he said, I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit on the mount of the assembly in the recesses of the north. He says, I will be king over all. I will supplant God as king. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. I will be the ruler and the one who reigns. So then we fast forward to the time the King of Kings is incarnated and comes to our planet and lives on our earth. Matthew chapter 4. In Matthew chapter 4, if you take a look at it, Jesus goes out to the wilderness. He's led by the Spirit to the wilderness. And he's tempted by the devil. And in the first temptation, it's after 40 days and 40 nights, what we find is royal language once again. And what we find here is, is one comes as a tempter and he offers him things to make him believe that he can rule over all if he bows his knee to him. So in verse 3, the tempter says, If you're the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. Now, after 40 days of fasting and 40 days of hunger, you can imagine that had to be a great temptation. And the temptation here is not to doubt God, but to be dependent upon oneself. He's saying, God's not taking care of you, so you take things in your own hands, Jesus, and turn these rocks into bread so you can eat. He says, if you're indeed the Son of God, if you are, in fact, in verse 3 he says, if you are, verse 6, if you are, and verse 9, if you. And and so he says, if you're indeed the Son of God, don't, don't be dependent upon God, but rather take things into your own hands. You ever want to do that? Oh, my. We were at camp two weeks ago. And uh, while we were at camp, one night my job was to dress Emerson Kate, who just turned two last Sunday. And so Emerson Kate is very independent. You've got three older brothers. You've got to learn how to be tough and independent. And so it was my job to get her dressed. And so I uh, got a diaper, and then I got her uh, pajama bottoms, and I, I got ready to pull them on. And it was a little dark in that room, so... A little difficult for me to see everything in there. And so I start wrestling with that a little bit. And she doesn't talk a whole lot, but she grabbed those from me and said, Me. Like, what'd she just say? I mean, you know, I, not only am I blind, I can't hear. I thought maybe my hearing aid went out. And, and she says, Me. And she snagged it and took off. I mean, she runs. No, I really don't have a chance. (laughs) But uh, she's so independent, she decided she wanted to dress herself. And I decided I'd let her. (laughs) And it wasn't gone too well, so then we have this little wrestling match. So who's going to win the battle? I mean, who's going to win that battle? She came close, I can tell you that. But, you know, afterwards, you know what I thought about? I'm lying in bed, and I'm thinking, isn't that the way I relate to God sometimes? I mean, here's a two-year-old gone up against a 58-year-old who's not as strong as he was a few months ago, but still, you know, a little bit anyway. And, And she thinks she can do it herself. And the thought went through my mind, Gary, isn't that like you and God at times? He calls you to be dependent upon him and not take things in your own hands. But there I stand like a two-year-old wrestling God. That's what Satan's saying. Just do it yourself. 
Just turn that bread into stone. And Jesus says, man shall not live by bread alone, but words that come from the mouth of God. You've got to be dependent upon the Father. I'm not going to do that. And then he takes them to the, to the holy city and he stands them on top of the temple. <clears throat> and he says, hey, here's the place where everybody can see it. Jesus, jump down and God will take care of you. Test whether or not God really cares. That's what he's saying. And Jesus wisely responds and he says, he, he will give charge, or, or Satan says he'll give charge his angels concerning you. He says, he, he will protect you. And Jesus says, you're not going to test the Lord your God. He says, I am not going to turn in, in from my father's care. I know my father cares for me. And I'm going to trust him. Do you know that? Hey, he cares for you. The past few months, one of the things I've learned is God's care. Wrestled with it at times, but I know he cares. He cares for us so immensely and loves us so much. It's absolutely amazing. Reading, Bev and I were reading at the same time last night and reading the, in Chronicles where David comes back and sings praises to God. Our hearts just rejoiced. This is our Father. This is our Father. And, and then you, you look at that and Satan comes a third time, boldly and brashly he comes and he says, he, he says this, it's kingdom language once again. Look at verse 9. These things I will give to you if you fall down and worship me. What things? In verse 8 he says, he showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. He says, if you will bow to me, if you will worship me, I'll give you these kingdoms. Well, who can give kingdoms? Only the rightly king. He says, if you will make me the king of your life. That's what he's saying to Jesus. If you'll make me king. The same thing he said in Isaiah. He's saying through the temptation, make me king and I will give you. And Jesus' response is, I will not betray my father. I will worship the Lord my God. You shall worship the Lord your God and serve of him only. That's it. That's it. He's the king. He overcame the temptation and the battle and the struggle. Hey, if Satan is willing to go toe-to-toe with Jesus, let me give you a warning this morning. He's going to go toe-to-toe with you. Who are we compared to the Savior, the king? But here's what I want to warn you about. He desires to rule over you as well. Satan desires to be your king. Paul Thigpen writes these letters, Satan prefers stealth strategies, the guerrilla ambushes of temptation, the sporadic sniper fire, false or ungodly thoughts, a siege of distractions that cause us to neglect spiritual nourishment. His objective remains the same, to take prisoner as many people as possible and disarm the rest. Satan's after you. Beware. Remember where Jesus was coming from when he was tempted? He was coming from his baptism where he just heard the Father say, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. He's coming from a a spiritual mountaintop and then Satan comes to get him. Beware, Satan comes with stealth strategies to get you. He's the promised king, the tempted king. He's the professed king. He's brought before Pilate and Pilate said to him, so you are a king? And Jesus answered and said, you say correctly, I am a king. This I've been born for and this I've come into the world to testify to truth. I am a king, but my kingdom is a kingdom of truth. It's not not a kingdom. I'm not worried about Herod. I'm not worried about the Romans. I've got a whole different kingdom to bring. It's the kingdom of truth. Jesus says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. Jesus Jesus is the only king who gave his life. Kings send soldiers into battle. He sent himself into battle and died on our behalf. That's the kingdom of truth. That's the kingdom of truth. He's also the triumphant king. See in the resurrection chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 57, you see at the end of that chapter, Paul writes, thanks be to God who gives us the victory through whom? The Lord Jesus Christ. He's the triumphant king. That's the resurrection chapter. 
Because of the resurrection, sin is defeated. A.W. Tozier says, the resurrection proves once and for all who won and who lost. He's the king, I tell you. He's the king. It says in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, thanks be to God who always leads us as captives in Christ's triumphal procession. It's a reference to the, the Roman parade of triumph where the conquering general would come in with all the spoils and everything from battle and he would lay out before the king who was there everything that he had to give to him. What are our spoils of victory? What can we give to our king? Our worship and our service. He's the promised king. He's the tempted king. He overcame that temptation. He's the professed king. He said, I am indeed a king, but not of this world. He is the triumphant king, and then he, to fulfill the Davidic promise, he's the eternal king. He's the eternal king. Revelation says those, these will wage war against the lamb, and the lamb will overcome them because he is Lord of lords, and he is what? King of kings. And then he is this. Read it with me. On his robe and on his thigh, He has written this name, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Amen? In the book of Daniel, Daniel writes about the coming king. And in chapter 7, Daniel says this. He says, he shall have dominion. He shall have dominion. Glory in a kingdom that all the peoples of every nation and language might serve him. His dominion is everlasting. It will never pass away, and his kingdom will never be destroyed. Prophetically, Daniel looks ahead to the Ancient of Days, the coming king, the ultimate king. Now, my friends, we can talk about Jesus as king, and we can see it through these Old Testament prophecies, and we can see it through the New Testament fulfillments. But here's the real question. The real question you have to ask yourself this morning is, is he your king? We can leave it out there and say, man, what a great journey through Scripture. What a great look at Scripture. We see Jesus as the fulfillment of everything that was promised. We see Jesus as the coming king. We see Jesus as the one who fulfilled it. And we see the angel speaking to Mary, Gabriel speaking to Mary and saying, he will come and we can see that he's the king of kings and lord of lords. But that's theology and it's good theology. And we need it. But then we have to ask the personal question. Is it your king? You made him the king of your life, your savior. Have you trusted him for forgiveness? And then if you have, do you enthrone him every day? Do you bow as his servant and say, you are my king. I am your servant. I will not worship anything else. I will not bow my knee to anyone else. I will not do things on my own, but submissive, to the will of the true king. Worship team is going to come and lead us in one last song. That song says, I'm forgiven because of what you've done. And then it says, you are my king. And I've got to ask you that question one last time. Is he your king? Is he your king? We'd love to pray with you about anything that's on your heart. I don't know if I've got any elders here this hour. Got any elders here? Would you join us up here? And, and we'd like to pray with you. We'd like to ask you to come and just pray, whatever it is. Bev will join me. And just allow you to make sure that Christ is indeed your king. Would you stand with us as we sing one final song?
Father, we thank you for sending your son, the prince, who's the king, who one day returns to rule and reign in righteousness forever. We thank you for that. In his name, amen and amen.